0: We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians this morning. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. Right where we left off last week, of course, we looked at um, 4 through 24. So this is page 952 in, in the Bibles. good Lord prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, once again, we come in faith, we come believing, we come expectantly, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see what you have revealed in your word. We want to understand this passage, so please show us the true meaning of, of what this says. Father, we ask for understanding and Father, we thank you that we have access to to this word. We pray that you would build up your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Preventative medicine is all about preventing disease. It's about taking action before there is a problem. And we know that there are certain things that... uh, will lower the risk of sickness and and injury and and disease. For example, not smoking significantly lowers your risk of developing lung cancer. We know that. Uh, Not drinking any alcohol will will lower your chances of of liver disease. Those things are understandable. Those x-rays that are taken at the doctor's office, they're taken not because they suspect anything is wrong. In fact, it's done when the patient's not complaining of any problems. Any kind of regular, scheduled imaging like that is to to find small problems before they become big problems. And we could also include positive, healthy behavior designed to maintain health and wellness. Things like regular exercise, cardiovascular workouts, uh, weight training, uh, flexibility and stretching. These are all things that are done before there's any actual problem or disease because we know that doing them can sometimes help stop problems from even occurring. And perhaps the best known or proverbial preventative medicine saying is, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25 is all about preventative medicine. Paul is taking action before there is a problem. Now we saw last week when he addressed a problem that was there. They, that actually was happening. They were dividing up along allegiances to different speakers and teachers based on worldly criteria. That that was already there. Uh, but this week he addresses a problem that is not yet surfaced. It, it hasn't happened yet. These raw Christians are showing a tendency to, to use worldly standards to evaluate things regarding the speaker. So Paul is now a suspect that they may be eventually applying those worldly standards towards the message. And so he decides to get at it. Before it becomes a problem. So if last week's main point was it's not the messenger, it's the message. This week it would be it's this message, not another message. And and Paul's doing this in a preventative medicine type of of way. They're not embracing another message yet. But they might. Now we've got a lot to get through this morning. It doesn't look like much, but there's a lot to get through we're going to pull in the, the immediate larger context. We're going to have to do a quick review just to make sure we're on the same page. We're going to open up Isaiah and crawl around in there for a little bit. So there's, there's a lot to get through. There are several concepts that you're going to have to keep up front in the working memory and then put together in order to make sense of this passage. But at the end, when we get to the application, this is one of the shortest and simplest applications we'll ever run across. It, it really is... Uh, straightforward. So let's go ahead and read our passage. It's only a few verses. 18 through 25 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God for it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I want to quickly refresh our memory about where we were at, or in case you weren't here last week. uh, Paul said in verse 17, he said this, "For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, or skilled speech, lest the cross cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So verse 17 is at the the end point of our passage last week, and it was talking about how the cross is not proclaimed with skilled speech. And remember, this was because skilled speech and smooth talking and persuasive uh, kind of maneuvering can produce a response. It, It can produce... Um, and cause people to positively respond to the message with an initial kind of reactionary uh, in the moment emotional response and buy in right at the beginning but it's not lasting commitment there's no heart transformation, there's no true conversion so the people are not saved that kind of worldly presentation of the gospel it doesn't produce authentic disciples of Jesus Christ Therefore, the raw Christians in Corinth should not be dividing over these external, uh, uh, worldly criteria. They shouldn't be looking at uh, speakers and and, and sizing them up and and placing their allegiance behind one because they were maybe closer to Jesus or another one uh, has a different style or one's more fervent in spirit. Paul says, don't. Don't do that. Those things don't matter the kind of gospel proclamation that Paul was preaching was straightforward. It was Christ-centered. It was hard-hitting. It was theologically deep, and it was anchored in the scriptures. Paul didn't tart it up with gimmicks or uh, uh, techniques or, or entertaining showmanship. Instead, he depended upon and trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict people of their sin, expose their urgent need for a Savior, and then, of course, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So that's 17. Now, in 18, Paul moves beyond correction and seeks to get out in front of this problem before it starts. So 18 through 25 is preventative medicine. He's essentially saying something like this. You know it's not the message, It, or excuse me, you know it's, not, it's the message, not the messenger. However, you also need to know it's this message, and not another message. This is Paul's apple a day to hopefully keep apostasy away. It begins by setting forth a dichotomy—excuse me, a dichotomy—presenting the only two responses to a faithful cross proclamation. Faithful preaching will elicit one of two kinds of responses. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. It says, for the word, or the proclamation of the cross, is folly. could also be translated as absurd, nonsense, silly, doesn't make any sense to those who are perishing. So the good news of the gospel, the message that God has chosen to save people, through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, and that as people repent and and put their faith in him, they're saved. That message doesn't make any sense to those who are perishing, to the unbelievers. But to us who are being saved, the church believers, it is the power of God. Well, what do we mean by the power of God? We don't have to look too far. It it means salvation, salvation, uh, we remember Romans teaches us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So this gospel message as it is proclaimed and, and preached, this is the vehicle. This is, this is how God communicates his message of salvation. And as he causes people to believe in it, they are saved. And So this is summarized in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's that's what he means when he says it's the power of God. So one response is that the gospel is absurd, silliness, and the other response is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Those are two radically different responses. They're they're not close. They're not similar. They're, They're almost polar opposites. They're very different. So what determines a person's response. What determines which group are you in? And we might think, well, uh, maybe it's you know an intelligence thing, you know, the smart and not so smart. Maybe maybe you have to be really smart. Or maybe it's a, a strength thing, you know, the strong or the weak, or maybe it's a a, a money thing, the, the, the rich and the poor and or maybe it's a personality thing. You know there's there's doers and there's thinkers, there's there's people that would rather work with the concepts and, and ideas and others that just want to get their hands on it. Maybe that's it. Maybe maybe it's just the thinkers, or, or, or just the poor, or the downtrodden, or, you know, we could go through this list all day, and the answer is no. No, it's, it's none of those things. That's not what determines the response. Instead, Scripture tells us that all humanity is divided into two groups. So it's right here in the verse, those who are perishing, and those who are being saved. Those are the two groups. That's what determines the response to a faithfully proclaimed cross-message. So those who are perishing, uh, ruined, destroyed, in the process where the outcome is being certain, those being destroyed, this is their current path, their road, their trajectory, they're, they're headed towards destruction, and ultimately, we understand what that means. It means the wrath of God, eternal punishment for, for sin, in the lake of fire. Those who are being saved, this is is a different path, this is a different trajectory. It's talking about those who have received salvation. They're they're headed towards God. They're headed towards being resurrected with with glorified bodies. Ultimately, the new Jerusalem, new heavens and earth, uh, that will exceed the paradise of Eden. And those who are being saved... See the gospel for what it is. So, the, these two groups, those who are perishing, those who are being saved, the, the being saved group sees the gospel for what it is because God has opened their eyes. They, they hear this message and they, they see that when God talks about the message, whenever there's a faithful cross proclamation, there, there's good news, but before the good news can be presented, the bad news has to be proclaimed as well. So, the, the bad news is that we are sinners, we are all born with a sinful nature. Since the fall of Adam, everyone through natural generation, and that means everyone, is born with a sin nature. And then we all commit sin every day. And that sin demands a response from God. It it, it demands punishment. In order to be a just God, he he has to punish sin. So we all stand condemned before God. And then the, the good news is that Jesus was sent by God to be the the one that Adam and none of us could ever do to live that perfectly righteous life to not have, A, been born with a sinful nature. He wasn't born by natural generation. Remember his his, uh, origin was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He didn't have an earthly father. So he was not born with a sin nature. And then also he never committed any sin his entire life. He was perfect and thought, need, and action. So Jesus did what Adam and, and Abraham and Moses and Paul and, and you and I could never do. He lived that perfectly righteous life. So then he went to the cross willingly and made the payment for our sin. Remember, God has to punish sin. So he punished the sins of his people on Jesus. That's where the wrath was, was placed. He took our place. So the good news is when we turn to Jesus, when we repent of our sin and turn to him, God credits or imputes that perfect righteousness to us so that now when God looks at us, we have the perfect record. And that payment that was made, the blood that Jesus shed, satisfies the wrath of God for our sin. So that gospel message of how we are made right with God makes sense when God opens the hearts and eyes the spiritual eyes of believers now the key is God doing the work of opening our eyes we don't come to that realization on our own it's not something we figure out that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 you must be born again to this Pharisee who was very religious very much interested in following God Jesus said no You've got to be born again. He also said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is impossible for anyone to come to Christ unless the Father draws him, meaning a special operation of the Holy Spirit, changes their heart, regenerates them, gives them new life. Other than that, impossible. That's how someone gets transferred from the those who are perishing group to the those who are being saved group. And that's the the reason for the two responses. So Paul lays all that out in in one verse. There are these two groups, two responses, one faithful cross message. And then he inserts a quote from Isaiah. So in order to see how Paul is using the quote from Isaiah, we need to understand a couple things. Usually when New Testament writers pull in and insert an Old Testament quotation like this, They're usually doing it to show us that something written and prophesied in the Old Testament has been fulfilled or is being fulfilled in the New. It's kind of like here it is in the Old Testament and and here it is, it's been fulfilled. It it was prophesied here, it's been fulfilled here. That's usually the reason they, they insert something like that to show the readers, hey, it's arrived. God's been faithful. He's done what he said he was going to do. And that's how it functions here. But in order to understand what he's trying to tell us, we've got to go back to Isaiah. So first of all, just a general background to to the book of Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah was a prophet. He was a prophet of God, and he came to the southern kingdom, or Judah. He prophesied in the years uh, 740 to 681 B.C. So this is during and after the fall of the northern kingdom, but before the fall of the southern kingdom. And Isaiah functioned in a lot of the way the Old Testament prophets functioned. He functioned as a courtroom prosecutor, a covenant prosecutor. He came on God's behalf to, to lay out the case against God's people. And he, he said, essentially, look, God has been graceful to you. He has called you and gathered you in as his chosen people, but you've been unfaithful. You've been rebellious and you have broken covenant with God. Therefore, God is going to bring punishment and judgment, and covenant enforcement. And in this case, it's through exile. But, in a lot of the Old Testament prophets, including the prophet Isaiah, there's also a hopeful note. There's also a promise of a glorious future with a new purified, redeemed people of God. So that's Isaiah in in a nutshell. Now, Isaiah's future, this, this glorified people, includes all nations, all people groups. It's not just that we're going to continue on with, with Israel, the descendants of Abraham. It's, we are going to open this thing wide up and all people groups are going to be gathered in. I want us to see this. Also, Isaiah 49.6 says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, Jesus, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God is going to send his servant, Jesus, not just to to bring back that remnant of of faithful Israel. Yes, he's going to bring them back, but he's also going to bring in all these new people from all over the world, from every people group. So that's the general context of Isaiah. Now let's look at Isaiah 29, 14. That's the verse that's in our passage. And I'm going to bring in the verses immediately before it and after it so we can see that context. And we're going to be putting it up on the screen, but there's going to be a lot of back and forth and there's going to be some other things. So if you you want to turn to Isaiah 49, it might be helpful. Uh, You certainly don't have to. So here's Isaiah 29, starting at verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. That's the quotation. 1 Corinthians. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay and the thing that made should save its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed, save him who formed it, he has no understanding? That's the Isaiah quote. With the verse before and two verses after it. So, first of all, let's break this down. When it it says, because this people draw near, whenever you see this people, that is an indication that God is not happy with his people. Normally, we see the phrase, my people, because that's who they are. This is God's covenant people, the ones that he has specially gathered and called out among all the other nations to be his people. People. And that's how he normally refers to them. If you turn back to Exodus and you look at Exodus 3 and Moses in the burning bush, God says, I have heard the cry of my people. But then by the time you get to chapter 32 after the golden calf incident, God says, this people are stiff necked They're no longer being called my people, they're being called this people. Or I think he even refers to, to Moses, your people, the people that you led out of Egypt. So when we see the phrase "this people," we know something has gone terribly wrong. He is not pleased with with Israel. This people draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. In other words, external, superficial, going through the motions type of of insincere worship, doing things just for show. I don't really mean it. Have you ever seen two children forced to apologize? There, there were two moms and their, their kids got together and they played. They, they got together a lot and they, they really liked playing together but they also fought hard. And they had a really bad argument and one mom said, okay, apologize. Apologize to your friend. Sorry. And now your turn. Sorry. Now hug and then they would run away did they go through the motions did they say sorry yes did they mean it no way no that is what God's talking about he's saying my people do what I am telling them to do technically but their hearts aren't in it they don't love me they don't mean it it's disingenuous it's not real we're going to skip over Verse 14, let's look at 15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? They are so deceived at this point that they think they can do these things in sincere worship, not really meaning it, and hide it from God. They knew what they were doing, but they think, well, God won't notice. He, he won't figure it out. They think they can manage God and, and keep him appeased by bringing the, the required sacrifices for worship, uh, technically uh, correct ceremonial acts performed at the required times, but they think, well, we'll just, you know, God, we'll keep this hidden from God. And then it says, you turn things upside down, verse 16, which, which could also be translated as perverseness, an exclamation of perverseness, Perversity is an intentionally, intentional desire to act in a way contrary to what is right. An intentional way. An intentional desire to act in a way contrary to what is right. That's what the prophet's saying on behalf of God. You, you turn things upside down. That's what he means by perverseness. You, you've got this backwards. You, you think that you can do things and, and hide it from God, and that's not the way it works. God can do things and he can hide it from you. He, he can choose not to reveal everything about who he is and what he's doing with you, and, and he has done that. But you can't do that to God. That's per- perversity. That's turning things upside down. Do you really believe that God has no understanding, that he can't see your heart? That's your plan? Really? You're going to hide things from God, you're going to try to pull, off, pull one off on God. You are one of his created creatures and God knows everything that runs through your mind and heart at all times. It's impossible to trick or deceive God. So that's the context of the Isaiah quote. They they were engaging in insincere worship. They weren't loving and following after God. And then they were trying to hide it. And they thought they could hide it. That's the context. Now verse 14. This is the one he quotes. Therefore, in other words, because this is the way you are, and everything in verse 13 and 15 and 16. Therefore, unfaithful Israel, Behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. So in response to all this unfaithfulness, unfa- in response to all this rebellion, this covenant breaking, this empty, dry worship, I'm going to do something astonishing. I, I'm going to do something that surprises. And in the verses that follow, there, the something astonishing is described in figurative language. It is described in figurative language that's used to, to, to communicate this idea of something making, totally, making something totally new, bringing total spiritual transformation. There's language about fields being turned into forests, the deaf shall hear, the blind shall see, but, but the intent, the, the, the sense of it is the spiritual transformation Something surprising is going on. And after that language of transformation, we read a summary of it in Isaiah 29, 22 through 23. Therefore, says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. So therefore when Jacob, remember Jacob is also known the name for Israel, and which is also a term for the people of God in the Old, in the old Covenant. When he sees his children, his spiritual children or spiritual offspring, the work of my hands... God brings to to new life people. That's what we talked about a moment ago. That special operation of the Holy Spirit. Regenerating people. Bringing them to new life. Opening their spiritual eyes. In his midst. In other words, when these spiritually born people are gathered. And grafted in. If we want to use Romans 11 language. With the the old covenant people of God. the, The faithful. When they're brought together. They will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. Sanctify means to set apart or to regard as holy. So they were going to regard as holy the Holy One of Jacob. The phrase Holy One of Israel, remember those terms are kind of interchangeable, Jacob and Israel, it's used frequently in Isaiah. The Holy One can and does refer to God and His His transcendent majesty, His purity, His, His sinless perfection, his divine otherness, but it's also a name for Jesus. When you see the phrase Holy One of Israel, it's also talking about Jesus. Isaiah 41 14, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. There is one Redeemer, and that's Jesus. John 6 69, this is Peter. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is the Holy One of God. So this prophecy is pointing forward to the church. When, when Jacob sees the new covenant people of God standing alongside the old covenant people of God and when he sees them uh, sanctifying God regarding as holy, the holy one of Jacob, Jesus, it will be glorious. In contrast to the, to the way the people of God who are his in name only, the, the unfaithful rebellious Israel that Isaiah is originally addressing, in contrast to that, the, this is going to be something spectacular. Instead of regarding God as light and insignificant, God will be regarded as weighty and supreme importance in His church. Instead of false worship, we're going to see true worship in His church. Instead of dry, empty ritual, we're going to see vibrant, full, heart engagement in His church. Instead of trying to hide sin and insincerity, Jesus' church will stand in awe of God. That's what's being said. In Isaiah. It's talking about the church. So, Isaiah 29 14, when he talks about the destruction of the wisdom of the wise, is talking about gospel proclamation. He's talking about this, this something wonderful, this something surprising. It's talking about God using a message that makes no sense to the world, but it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. That's why Paul's bringing it in right here. That's, that's, that's why this is inserted. He's saying, remember what we said, Old Testament prophesied, New Testament fulfilled. That's what Paul's saying. By bringing in this Isaiah quote, he's saying, God said he was going to do this a long time ago. He's doing it. You're living it, Church of Corinth. You're experiencing it. He is, he is destroying the wisdom of the wise by choosing to use the proclamation of the gospel, to call his people. Everyone else, they don't get it. They don't understand it. The Isaiah context brings even more to our passage, even more meaning. This, this quote, right, to its original audience, was an indictment against their scheming to seek salvation outside of God. In, in the Old Testament, God was the one who went before them. God was the one who guaranteed victory. God was their warrior king who went before them and made sure that that they came out on top. They decided that they would look to Egypt. They thought that was a good idea. And God answers them. Isaiah 30, 1 through 3, immediately after Isaiah 29 that we just looked at. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine and who make an alliance, but not in my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. You see, Old Testament Israel looked to Egypt and they saw what they were looking for. They saw power. They saw power. Uh, A display of of chariots, of horses, of bow and spear and sword. They saw a vast army. They saw a wealthy empire. They had the resources to maintain that army and supply lines. And they said, yes, that's what we need. That's what we need for protection against Assyria. Uh, In contrast, God cannot be seen. He's invisible. So they put their trust in worldly strength for salvation. They were using worldly standards and worldly criteria to look for help, to look for salvation, so they turned to Egypt instead of God. Paul is telling his church in Corinth that the message of the cross is not going to exude worldly strength and power. The message of the cross is not going to look like Egypt but it's the only message that saves. So do not depart from it. Do not make plans without checking with God. Do not do do something without asking him. Don't look to any other message for salvation. Now, the rest of the passage, fairly simple walkthrough. The rest of it is just explaining what he outlined in verses 18 and 19. the The rest of the passage is Paul essentially saying, hey, you don't believe me? Look around. Look around, tell me tell me what you see. This is exactly what God is doing. So verse 20, where, where is the one who is wise, the scribe, the debater? Wise, just a general, smart person. Uh, scribe, this was an expert in the Jewish law. And then debater would be uh, someone seeking philosophical truth, generally of Greco-Roman background. So he says, give me one of these really smart people. And then he gives an example of, of a Jewish smart person and, and a Greek smart person, an expert. So he's saying, bring in the experts. Uh, Have them tell you how to get saved. Have them tell you how how to be made right with God. They can't. Bring in your smartest guy. Bring in your expert. They They can't tell you. They don't understand the word of the cross. Verse 21. The world did not know God through wisdom. The world did not know God. God has determined that people cannot and will not figure out how to be saved on their own. In other words, people can't think their way to God. This is what the world religions are. This is what false religions are. There's there's somebody somebody's idea about who God is, and then somebody's idea about how to get there. Well, if you just, uh, I, I think God's like this, and so the way to get there is to do this, and to make this pilgrimage, and to pray this way, and to, to give these offerings, and, and to go over here, and to to offer this sacrifice, and I mean, et cetera, et cetera. These are just people trying to think up ways about who God is and how how to get there. And we look to God's word, and God says, I didn't say that. I I never asked you to do that. I I never said that's who I was. You're going off on your own. Or or no religion. This is people trying to think their way to God. People thinking, um, well, I'm, I'm generally a good person, so I think everything will be okay in the end. That's just your idea. That, that's just you trying to think your way to God. That's not what God said. God said, I didn't, I never said that. I never said good people go to heaven and really bad people go to hell. In fact, it says no one is good except God alone. That's what Jesus said. It's kind of like this. Do you remember back in the, the days when they used to show cartoons on Saturday morning? They they used to show uh, Roadrunner Wile E. Coyote cartoons. And uh, Wile E. Coyote was this character who was always trying to catch the Roadrunner to eat him. And he came up with all these different schemes and ways to get the Roadrunner. uh, Rockets and roller skates and anvils dropping and dynamite. and And you name it, he tried it. One of the things he tried to do was he took some paint and he painted a, a, a yellow line away from the road, up this, this cliff, this rock face, and then it, it ended with this giant flat piece of rock right in front of him, but he, he painted the line up into there and then he painted an oval and he made it look like a tunnel. He made it look like the road extended through the rock and the little of a little tunnel, uh, a little kind of opening made of light on the end. and So he gave the illusion that it it looked like it kept going. That's kind of like the wisdom of this world. That's kind of like the world thinking they've got it all figured out. That's kind of like the world not being able to see the gospel. But the world's driving along and it, it looks like it just keeps going. This road that they're on the, the road, those who are perishing they're on this road and it looks like it just keeps going and the, and the church is shouting hey stop that, that's disaster, you're, you're going to die it's, it's destruction and they're just driving along no, no I, I can see that uh, and it, it keeps going, I, I can see the light I'm headed towards the light, stop that's not it, that's not a road that leads to life they don't see it they can't see it outside of the work of God. The world cannot know God through their own thinking. Mankind has a sin nature, and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, our minds are darkened regarding salvation. So Paul's teaching here. The message of the cross is just plain unattractive. It doesn't make sense to the unbeliever. It's it's considered foolishness if we gather the smartest person in the world and if there was a way to determine who the smartest person in the world was and if they were on this road if they were perishing they would just say this is foolishness this doesn't make sense it's absurd it's a fairy tale that's for people who have trouble coping with life so they need a crutch doesn't make sense and then verse 22 23 Jews need signs Greeks need wisdom so the reason Paul divided the world up into two groups is because Jews had that old testament connection they were the descendants of Abraham they had been under the old covenant the people of god so so they already had that background they 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 knew the old testament scriptures they knew uh, all this foundational teaching Greeks did not they they did not they weren't part of the people of god so instead of Paul going through the trouble of naming every single people group that existed, he just names Jews and Greeks and that covers the whole world. So that's why he only names two. And he frames it like this. He says, Jews demand signs. So we're going to call this group the the You Prove It group. Uh, The the Jews were always demanding them signs. Show me. Prove it. Do something. They, They came to Jesus. Show me. Even on the cross, remember? At the end. Come down from there. Show us. Give us a sign. Because they knew that God didn't work powerfully in the past. They were looking for some some spiritual fireworks. To show us some thunder or some lightning or some parting of water or some uh, you know some something burning but not burning up. I mean give us a sign. You show me, you prove it. No. Their minds were darkened. Greeks see wisdom, so this isn't that you prove it, this is a I'll prove it. Greeks demand that you tell me what you got, lay out your pitch, and then I'll take it and I'll compare it to everything I know and the wisdom of the ages and everything that I, the universal laws, and I'll make sure it fits with everything nice and neat with no outstanding questions and and to my satisfaction and if it makes sense to me, okay, good. You tell to me, I'll prove it. So we've got these two groups. You prove it and I'll prove it. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to give you a message that satisfies neither vertical. I'm not going to continue to give you ongoing signs every time someone demands it, and I'm not going to give you a message that makes sense. It's going to defy the laws of physics. People won't come back from the dead, but Jesus did. Once again, Paul's saying, look around. Does this make sense? Go to the... Look at the Jews, look at the Greeks. Unless God has changed their hearts, unless he's brought them to spiritual life, the message does not make sense. God purposely designed the Gospels so that it would not please either group. And then in verse uh, 24, of course, but it works for believers, for those that have been brought to spiritual life. They get it. It's the power of God salvation, for salvation. Those who are being saved understand that they're sinful. They understand that every person who's ever been born cannot please God. They understand that they can't think their way to God or work their way to God or be good enough to God. They understand that it has to be someone exactly like Jesus. They had to be a man. He had to be perfect. He had to be uh, born of a woman. He had to be in Bethlehem. He had to, all, all these prophecies in the Old Testament, everything has to fit, and it does. They get it. That's the only way anyone can be made right with God. And then verse 25 is a summary statement of everything he's just said. This is preventative medicine. Remember, they're, they're not there yet. But Paul sees where their worldly standards have snuck into evaluating speakers. And so he is striking preemptively with this teaching. If we could give the sense, Paul is saying, hey, pay attention, you raw Christians, my brothers and sisters in Christ. When you form these allegiances around individual speakers based on, on worldly criteria like speaking style or flashiness or, or star power, when you, when you do that, you're acting like the world. And the fact that you're already starting to gravitate towards particular speakers based on these worldly standards makes me concerned that you're going to gravitate towards a worldly message. If a faithful gospel speaker isn't enough for you, how long will it be before a faithful gospel message isn't enough for you? If, if you're already looking at teachers through worldly eyes, how long will it be before you start looking at the gospel through worldly eyes? He's trying to get out in front of it. So he says, I have some preventative medicine for you. Here, this is your apple that you're going to take once a day. This message of the cross, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, is never going to look good to the world. If you look at it through worldly criteria, worldly standards, worldly eyes, then it's not going to look good. It's not going to look good to those who are perishing, and it's not going to look good for those who use that type of worldly evaluation. And that is the way God set it up. It's a preventative medicine. It hasn't infected them yet. Remember, notice that right now it's not a problem. The only problem identified so far is the groups. I mean, otherwise we'd see something like, um, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that you've also departed from the gospel. What I mean is this, that each of you accept something different regarding the cross and salvation. No, he doesn't say that because it's not a problem yet. And remember, all the teachers mentioned are preaching the cross. Apollos? Peter? Paul? Yes. Straight down the middle. Christ crucified. So there's no departing yet. But he launches into this extended teaching about the two groups, the two different responses. He hauls in this this cumbersome Isaiah quote. And he asks them to verify it by looking around. He does all this because it's preventative medicine. He wants to nip this in the bud. He doesn't want the problem of worldly speaker preference to worm its way into worldly message preference. He doesn't want something, the Corinthians, to start getting a taste for something more more palatable or or more uh, desirable by the world or something that has softer edges to it. So he says, hey, just so you know, not only are some of the teachers that will be instructing you in in Christ's church be unimpressive according to worldly standards, the message also is going to look unimpressive by worldly standards. In fact, it's going to seem not like ridiculous to the world. So get ready to look uncool. Get get prepared to, to seem weird to your neighbor's you need to be comfortable with appearing foolish or unsophisticated by the world. I don't want you to wander from the cross message. I don't want you to alter the cross message. And I certainly don't want you to put up with anyone preaching anything other than an authentic cross message. This is the, this is the church that Jesus has established and this is the message that he wants proclaimed. I'm going to read from Luke 5, just a couple of verses and draw it in as kind of the closing application this is Luke 5 1 through 11 on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets getting into one of the boats which was Simon's he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat Jesus' command did not make sense. These were professional fishermen. You think they know. They'd done this their entire life. They knew nothing else. But Jesus' command seemed like foolishness, maybe even absurdity. It didn't seem like what Jesus told them to do was going to work. And in the same way, it may appear at times that the gospel is not going to work. But it really doesn't matter if we think the gospel is going to work or not. We say, at your word, the church will proclaim this message unaltered, unfiltered, undiluted, unadulterated, and unapologetically. We are going to do what you told us to do. This is the simple straightforward application. If you are a new Christian, if you are a raw Christian, a new new believer, then you need to know that the gospel message is never going to look attractive to the world. And if you're a mature believer, consider this a booster shot. Faithful gospel proclamation will work with 100% effectiveness to bring God's people to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ at the appointed time. For those who are being saved, the gospel is the power of salvation and for everyone else, it is purposely designed by God to look absurd. Amen.